This episode is sponsored by GiveWell. Imagine if every year you saved a person's life. One year you rescued someone from a burning building. The next year you saved someone from drowning. The year after that, you're out for dinner with your partner or maybe you're on a date. You notice someone across the room having a heart attack. You perform CPR and save their life. You would really be a hero. The truth is we have an opportunity to do this every single year of our lives just by targeting our donations to the most effective charities in the world. How is this possible? Three premises. Number one, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you make more than 19 and a half thousand US dollars per year post-tax and are therefore in the richest 10% of the world. Number two, we can do 100 times more good for others than for ourselves by focusing on the parts of the world most in need because a doubling of income will always increase subjective well-being by the same amount. And three, in the same way as the success of for-profit companies isn't normally distributed, some charities are vastly more effective than others. But how do you find the most effective charities? Well, since 2010, over 100,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $1 billion. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save over 150,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. Here's how. GiveWell spends over 30,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only directs funding to a few of the highest impact, evidence-backed opportunities they've found. Here's the best part. Using GiveWell's research is free. GiveWell wants as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about high-impact giving. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site for free with no sign-up required. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity or fund you choose without taking a cut. I personally give to the Against Malaria Foundation, which distributes bed nets to prevent malaria at a cost of about $5 to provide one net. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $100 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. Just go to givewell.org and pick podcast and the Jolly Swagman podcast at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from the Jolly Swagman podcast to get your donation matched. That's givewell.org, select podcast, and then select the Jolly Swagman podcast at checkout. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the show. This episode's guest has helped make me a more productive person, and he might do the same for you. Have you ever had the experience of reading a good nonfiction book, and then it comes up in conversation a couple of months later, and you realize you can barely recall any of its details? All those hours of reading have left you with nothing more than an impressionistic residue of the basic argument of the book. If you're like me, that experience may not be surprising to you. What is remarkable is how we seem to just shrug and accept the fact that we forget most of what we read. That experience is an example of the general claim that we don't take knowledge work nearly as seriously as we should. If you haven't heard the term knowledge work before, it simply refers to jobs in which you think for a living. If you're a hedge fund manager, a university professor, a consultant, a lawyer, a startup operator, a blogger, a scientist, a doctor, you, like me, are a knowledge worker. Most, but not all of this audience will be knowledge workers. This episode's guest argues that 
Just as high-level athletes and musicians religiously and relentlessly hone their basic skills, think of concert pianists practicing scales or NBA players shooting hoops, knowledge workers should also use deliberate practice. In short, we need to take knowledge work more seriously. But what might this look like? How might we knowledge workers ensure that our knowledge accumulates rather than dissolving like sandcastles? My guest suggests at least two tools or practices which we discuss in this episode. One is a practice of writing evergreen notes. In fact, taking good evergreen notes may be, according to my guest, the fundamental unit of knowledge work. An evergreen note consists of a few sentences or paragraphs on a single concept. The key to a good evergreen note is it should be atomic. That is, it should be about one idea only and it should capture the entirety of that idea. You can write evergreen notes in an app or on cue cards, like in a traditional Zettelkasten system. Eventually, you might have hundreds or thousands of them. The idea is that you keep the notes forever, though you can always return to them and edit and manicure them as your knowledge evolves. Your evergreen notes should ultimately link to each other in a huge associative web, which gives rise to higher order categories and helps you find surprising connections between ideas. A second tool or practice my guest advocates is a spaced repetition memory system, an efficient way to remember thousands of facts by intermittently prompting yourself with cues or questions about facts you're trying to remember. If you're familiar with flashcards, you get the basic idea. Again, you could use a digital or analog system, but what's more important is the design of the system itself. Ideally, a spaced repetition memory system would also link up with your evergreen notes. Practices like these, evergreen notes and spaced repetition memory systems, along with other practices discussed in this episode, form what I'll call an intellectual exoskeleton that can make you not just more productive, but increasingly more productive. So who is my guest? My guest is Andy Matushik. Andy is a software developer and designer who has spent years working on technologies that expand how people think and what they can do. He got his start at Apple, where he helped build iOS. He then founded and led Khan Academy's R&D lab, and he now works as an independent researcher. Andy's research into technologies that improve human cognition and creativity has led him to investigate an ambitious question. How can we develop new tools for thought? Tools for thought are tools, broadly defined, that augment human intelligence. Examples include language, writing, numbers, and computers. The tantalizing question is, might there be new tools for thought just waiting to be conceived? These could include things like spaced repetition memory systems, but the possibility space is much larger and much more interesting than just that. Andy and I discuss how we can develop transformative tools for thought in this conversation. Andy is one of the most interesting and important thinkers in Silicon Valley today. So if you're a knowledge worker and you don't yet know about him, You're welcome. Enjoy the conversation. Andy Matushik, welcome to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Andy, it's so great to speak with you. I found your work last year through a friend. In fact, I think a mutual friend of ours, Peter Hart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. And discovering you was was kind of like being unplugged from the matrix. <laughs> uh, it was one of the most wow. important 
intellectual events of, of 2021. Wow, for, that's for, very for several reasons. <laughs> okay. Well, I <laughs> think you're you. doing some some really interesting and important work and I'm, I'm so thrilled to have the opportunity to chat with you and, and share your insights and your ideas with my audience. So thank you so much for joining me. As you know, I want to cover a bunch of different topics, some first principles related to the kind of problems that you're solving, learn a little bit more about you and your background, and then talk about tools for thought and your own note-taking system and other tools that you use on a daily basis. I thought perhaps we could start with your background and then go into the first principles. So as a kid, you spent much of your time making video games and then as an early teenager, you worked on an app for making art for video games and then you joined Apple and, and again, you were making tools which could help make apps <laughs> for making art for video games. So what is your favorite video game of all time and why? Ah, uh, uh, so uh, I, I think if you were to ask me today, my answer would be The Witness by Jonathan Blow, um, which is a, a very beautiful game that's basically about discovery. It's about insight. It's about epiphany. And one of the things that's so striking about it to me and, and just really inspiring as a designer is that the, the game includes um, basically no written or spoken language. Uh, and so it is a, is a lengthy game, maybe 70 or 80 hours, and you're learning all these very complex mechanisms in this very unusual environment. Um, and yet you're doing this without anyone really telling you anything explicitly. And so this game is really inspirational for me as I think about human learning uh, because such complex things are, are, are being learned by people here without language. And, and, and so, you know, maybe, maybe things like that are, are possible outside of the game context. You studied at Caltech, you studied computer science. And mm-hmm. while you were there, you were in, in, I understand you were involved in updating Caltech's computer science curriculum. Mm prior to it becoming as popular as it is today. What did you change about the curriculum and why? And how did you find yourself in that position? <laughs> okay, well, I, 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 sh- I should couch that by saying that I, I doubt that what I did contributed to it being popular today. I think that's part of just, you know, a broad trend. I was in the right place at the right time. Um, I, I really focused on the first year. Uh, I was uh, a senior at the time. And uh, th- there, there, were, there were two problems that, that we wanted to solve. Um, one of them was that uh, Caltech is, is very focused on, on theory, and so its students spend a lot of time studying math and, and proving things, uh, and this was really wonderful. So when people left, um, they, they could think about problem solving in software in a really principled way, uh, but often they couldn't actually build software. So th- there, there was an introductory course that, that was sort of designed to help people do that, um, but it, um, yeah, it, it kind of needed a lot of help. So, so with a couple of, a couple of colleagues, we we sort of retooled this around the way that people were really building software today. And I felt like this was a, a lovely opportunity for me to apply some of what I'd learned um, doing a lot of building to um, this very like theoretical context uh, at Caltech, very math centric. Um, and the other thing we were trying to do was uh, Caltech has this very unusual setup where, uh, you know, even if you're a geologist or something like that, you're, you're going to study quantum physics. <laughs> you're going to study chemistry and you're going to study Biology, everybody for the first two years, at least this was the case when, when I was there, um, uh, studies roughly the same thing. And for, for most of the majors, that includes computer science. And so that created a practical problem that y- you have a bunch of people who are, who are going to make computer science their field um, kind of in the same class with somebody who's going to be like a, a chemist uh, who's studying computer science um, because everyone is kind of expected to know how to think computationally. And so we kind of, we kind of broke out 
um, the, the first subjects um, for that very first introductory class so, so that uh, there was something that would be you know, more suitable for uh, all scientists to take um, and then something else that, that would be a little more specialized to computer scientists. who And, and that, that class really went into the, um, there, there's a very classic computer science text called um, The Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. And um, that's, that's where we kind of moved that text to um, for, for the computer scientists. When did you discover the work of David Deutsch? And <laughs> how did it influence your worldview and, and the trajectory of your life? Uh, David Deutsch substantially changed the trajectory of my life, actually. Uh, I, I discovered him through uh, a, a friend of mine, Mills Baker, uh, who, who has a, a really lovely blog full of wonderful essays online. Uh, and he sent me this email that said, Andy, this is incredibly urgent. I need to send you a book today because I think this book solves basically all of the problems that you and I have been discussing you know, politically, artistically, philosophically. And uh, I, 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 we, we were obviously very enthusiastic at first. Of course, that enthusiasm is, is tempered a little bit by distance. But um, at the time, th this book was really the right place at the right time for me. It contained a lot of uh, fundamental answers to questions of purpose, uh, meaning, power, uh, the role of the self that, uh, that were very novel to me, um, having not very rigorously studied uh, certain branches of philosophy previously. And um, in, in terms of how it changed my life, I think yeah, there, there are a number of ways in, in which it really substantially changed my thinking, but probably the most powerful uh, are these messages that are uh, carved on stone tablets introduced uh, early in the book. And the messages that if a problem solution is not forbidden by the laws of physics, then there is a solution. We just don't know it yet. And the second tablet says, and there will always be problems. <laughs> so we don't get to get out of it. Stasis is not a solution. Uh, and yet, all these things which seem so intractable or which seem like the, the status quo we were born into and therefore they will always be that way, they don't have to be that way. It sounds very trivial when just stated so baldly like that, but then you know, the book goes on for another 800 pages, you know, talking through the consequences of this. And uh, at the time, I, I was working at Apple and having a, kind of a very rewarding time building things with a great deal of craft and, and trying to make the back of the cabinet uh, extremely polished and beautiful, even though no one would see it. It's kind of the, the metaphor. But uh, this, this really expanded my sense of, of what I should consider for my career. And I started interrogating, well, you know, if, if, if all problems are either <laughs> forbidden by the laws of physics to be solved or, in fact, are solvable, then what problems should I be working on? Uh, and and that, that made working at Apple uh, uh, basically feel impossible. Um, actually, I, 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 it really it, it made me kind of temporarily quite unhappy. Uh, I, I woke up and I got on the bus to go to Apple and I, I felt like, what, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing here? This is of no cosmic significance whatsoever. Now, I, I, in retrospect, I, I think that reaction was unhealthy. Uh, I, I think um, insisting on, on that kind of uh, cosmic eternal uh, purpose is, um, is misguided. Uh, but at the time, it, uh, yeah, it really shoved me onto a different track. <laughs> I assume the book you're talking about here is The Beginning of Infinity. It is. Have you read The Fabric of Reality as well? Yes, absolutely. Do you have an opinion as to which of the two is the better book? Ah, well, they, they address, I mean, related, but, but fairly different topics. Uh, the, the fabric of reality was, for me, somewhat more abstract. 
it, it made these really fascinating claims about the nature of the universe that, uh, again, just based on my prior reading, were very unusual and, and novel. Uh, and so I found that book really edifying. And to this day, it has changed the way that I think about uh, questions like free will, um, kind of determinism, mm, destiny. Uh, but uh, the beginning of infinity felt much more personally relevant. It really like spoke to me in, at a teleological level. <laughs> Question: What is the good? Uh, what can I? Should I be doing? So I'm going to glide over the Apple years and sure. jump to <laughs> to Khan Academy. Sure. What were the most important things? Because at Khan Academy, you, you, you founded and led the R&D lab. And I'm curious, what were the most important things you learned about how to lead teams successfully during your time at Khan Academy? Right. Well, I, I should begin by saying that uh, uh, I, I, think I, I think I wish I'd, I'd internalized these things a, a lot sooner. Certainly, I could have been a better leader at the time. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me try to give some answers that, that, that aren't so cliched. You know, a lot of the things that I learned are, are I think, the things that, that everybody learns when, when they're thrown into a really difficult leadership situation for the first time. Um, an unusual thing that I learned really has to do with um, the, the creation of and governance of a culture of taste. I think this is a really challenging thing in organizations. Taste is subtle. And there isn't one right answer either. If you're doing research, there's a certain degree of, uh, say, depthiness and polish uh, that one should insist on, and there's places where you want to be scrappy. Then, And then if you're doing production work, there are different answers to that question. And so when we look at companies like, I don't know, Apple or Stripe or Peloton, and we compare their work to many other companies one reaction many people have is like, wow, this, this is a company that, that maybe ships really consistently highly polished stuff. And it's very difficult on the ground to make that happen. It, there are so many people contributing to the product and there's so much contingency. Each individual has so much of the product's kind of destiny uh, in, in its hand in, in, a, in a small way often. It'll, it'll just be kind of the, the polish at a particular corner or the thoughtfulness of a particular interaction that um, command and control can't, can't make it all work. And so uh, I, I, learned, um, I learned how to govern this through, through some trial and error and, and also through some of my, my colleagues at Khan Academy, uh, Ben Kamins, who, who led the, the engineering wing, and, and Mei Li Ku, who came over with me from Apple and led design. One thing that really worked was being quite conspicuous in setting an example. And this kind of requires being a bit of a player coach. Um, it, it also requires some delicacy because uh, taken too far, this can turn into like, well, you know, the the CEO or the director or whatever, like they're the only ones who can do it the right way and <laughs> no one else is allowed to do it the right way. Um, so I, I think there's a negative interpretation of this, but a positive interpretation is, is something where when, when there's a particular uh, methodology or practice that, that you want to see appreciated, um, you kind of conspicuously demonstrate it in a way that does meaningfully contribute. And uh, you, you highlight very consistently and uh, overtly and genuinely um, instances in, in which others on the team uh, manage, to, uh, manage to achieve that particular, that particular practice or that facet of taste. And this isn't just like 
good versus bad. It's often things like um, for, for teaching and students, it's very tempting to basically have an authoritarian relationship with students. And much of the school system is kind of uh, structured around this. And so when thinking about designing instructional material or tools that can help students, it's very tempting to talk about doing things to students or making students learn a thing. And this is, this is really misguided. And so even in our speech and in our way of thinking, we want, we want to be thinking about students as the agents. We want to be thinking about their goals. Um, and so uh, it was very important that I and, and other leaders conspicuously model that as, as much as possible and, and highlight and congratulate uh, others who are, who are thinking in this very student-centered way rather than in kind of an authoritarian way. And that's just one example. I don't think I've gotten that completely right, but I, I think this question of how to, how to sustain a particular kind of taste in an in institution is just so interesting. To unpack that a little further, so I think what you're referring to there is, is while you were at Khan Academy, you implemented this like o- almost cultural hack which was to make always make students the most important subject of your sentences. So instead of saying, like, we're teaching students X, you would change the sentence to, we're helping students to learn X. And that little grammatical tweak was like a really profound kind of shift in perspective that helped your team to, to constantly be thinking about how they could enable students to be their best rather than sort of dictating knowledge to them in an authoritarian manner. What was the outcome there? Did that little grammatical tweak turn out to have like important consequences? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for highlighting that. It's a, that's a very specific story and it's one that works, worked very well. Uh, It's basically just a reaction. Um, So Meili and I noticed that we were often talking at cross aims uh, to other designers or, or engineers who had somewhat of a more authoritarian relationship, and not with negative intent. It was just kind of automatic. Um, and and we, we had trouble putting our finger on, like, what is this difference? Um, it wasn't that we always talked in one way, you know, with the students as the subjects of the sentence, and they always talked in the other way. But we realized that at the heart of it, that was, that was the difference, uh, thinking about who was the subject and who was the object. And we found that, yeah, by, by, by speaking in this other way, where the students were the subject, it, it would kind of influence people. And um, when kind of repeating people's ideas back, we would often rephrase them in this way. So someone would say, uh, yeah, and we're going to make the students understand uh, you know, this, this particular law by having them do this exercise. And we would say, ah, okay, so your plan is to uh, make it possible for students to realize that there's this relationship by you know, creating this particular context. And repeating that back actually really did change people's, uh, at least speech patterns, and I think thought patterns too. Uh, over the, the course of the time we were there, uh, we saw really substantial differences in, in the culture moving from a fairly instructionalist perspective to, to a somewhat more, we might say, like constructivist, where, where the, the learner is doing more of the, the constructing the ideas. And of course, this particular hack was like one of, of many uh, activities that, that, that push things this way. Um, but I, I think these kinds of uh, very intentional 
um, modeling um, behaviors re- really do help. I'd love to talk about some first principles now just to, to lay some foundations for the rest of the conversation. Sure, and sure. this next question I actually take from the book Understanding by Design by Wiggins and McTyre, which I, I, I discovered through reading your work. And, and the question is this, what is understanding and how does it differ from knowledge? <laughs> right. Well, if you've read this book, you've encountered the fact that, that there are many different definitions of understanding. But uh, the working one that, that I like to use is, is adapted from Dewey. And, and that's that a person understands something when they can flexibly and fluidly apply what they know in a variety of contexts through you know, synthesis, procedural means, creating something new, judging something, uh, making connections. Um, and it's really that, that flexibility and, and the fluidity uh, that's important, as, as well as the variety of contexts that's important. So, so we have like transfer to a, a number of, of domains. I think that's what characterizes the difference between understanding and knowing, at least for me. And when you say transferring it to a number of different domains, how would you in, in practice actually know when you've genuinely understood something? Right. <clears throat> well... I don't think there's a, there's a binary line. I, I, I think there, there, there's never a moment when you say like, aha, now I understand it and before I didn't and there's no more understanding to be done. Uh, I think instead it's a little bit more like uh, you're on a hike through a, through a kind of a craggy terrain and you pass over a ridge and you see this kind of uh, frontier that, that you couldn't see before. And then, of course, you see the higher ridge in front of you. Um, so when and how does that happen? You, you need to be able to recognize the applicability of knowledge in, in this other domain uh, that tends to require uh, kind of abstracting the knowledge to a greater degree. So it's not just that you know that like this particular bird has this particular color of feathers, um, but rather you start to understand that like birds which um, have these feeding behaviors have feathers which work in this way. And that allows you to notice that like, ah, because the trees here are shaped in this way, like we should expect to see birds with, with these properties. Um, so abstraction helps. Uh, Lowering uh, other kinds of, of metacognitive load uh, helps. So, so for instance, um, you know, being in a situation where, where you aren't being really taxed by um, by what's going on in, in this new domain uh, will, will make it easier for you, for you to apply the stuff that you know from the old domain. And there's kind of a, a number of properties like that. And your ability to understand and apply things in these new domains will vary based on the situation. So, you know, if you, if you go to a new domain uh, and um, you you're having a, a really difficult interaction with, uh, with a colleague uh, in, in this new domain, then uh, you may find yourself unable to apply the, the things that you, that you knew from some other domain. You might not see a connection that you otherwise might see because, uh, yes, some, some part of your metacognition is occupied with governing this relationship. Uh, what, what, do we, what do we currently know about how human beings store long-term memories? Sure. So this kind of, there's a couple of ways to approach this. There's, um, there's sort of like a functional way we can describe. We can say like, well, when we, when we, um, we sit people in rooms and we have them do tasks and talk to them, uh, we notice these patterns. So that's like one kind of thing I can describe. And then there's um, the physiology. There's like how actually chemically and biologically is it encoded. Um, and and we've, we've made some progress in both of those things. So in terms of long-term memory specifically, we understand, for, for instance, that there's a difference between what we call semantic memory, and that's like 
you know, knowing that uh, a toucan's feathers are a particular color, uh, and episodic memory, which is which is more like like a, a personal history. It's a little bit like a movie in your mind. It's it's what allows you to, um, you know, to kind of play back experiences vividly. Um, so that those are like stored in different places, for instance, and you know, damage to different spots in the brain will will cause uh, different effects on those things. Um, we also know that uh, memories can be can kind of reinforce and uh, and and harm each other uh, in the long term, or, or or let's say inhibit each other. So, for instance, if you um, if you go to the same place and, and do exactly the same thing uh, many many times, then uh, details of what happened the second time you went to that place will actually be eroded by the the subsequent memories uh, that 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 you formed in that place. These are kind of these these inhibitory things that happen. So there's sort of like a, an averaging out <laughs> that, that happens over time. Um, but there's also a reinforcement that's possible. So for instance, um, if, if you learn a, a particular thing and then uh, you encounter it in another context and in yet another context, and then it connects to something very deeply personally meaningful, then uh, now this, the same thing is encoded in a lot of different, uh, a lot of different ways. And uh, you'll, you'll find it easier to retrieve. There's a whole bunch of, of phenomena like this we can describe um, functionally. So for instance, uh, if we ask you to relate things that you're learning to yourself very personally, um, like give you a word list and ask for each of the words, does this word apply to you? Does it describe you? Uh, then you'll remember that word better because we're like narcissistic in this interesting way. <laughs> if, I, if I ask you uh, for, for each word I'm having you learn to, uh, to form an image, like a, a really vivid visual image, uh, then you'll remember it better. So th- there are these, these kind of long lists of micro effects that... Uh, that um, kind of improve memory. It's very difficult to add all these up into some kind of very simplistic unifying theory, like a theory of gravitation. And this kind of brings us to the physiology. You know, how, how are things actually physically encoded? This is not a topic that I've studied in a, in a great deal of detail. Uh, my understanding is that uh, things are encoded um, both, both locally and in a highly distributed fashion. So, so for instance, uh, sometimes we'll find that uh, that there are like very specific neurons uh, which uh, which activate very precisely in very specific settings, and then other times we'll find that you know your your, your representation of a bus is like distributed over you know, some massive swath of, of, of your brain. Um, there, there are some durable chemical changes. Sometimes uh, these things are actually observable um, either by by fMRI or other means. Um, and uh, there are like consistent regions of the brain that, that participate in these things. And so if damage is done to these regions of the brain, then, then we have difficulty making memory. We also know that um, there's physical growth involved and uh, plasticity involved. There's a classic study of, of London cabbie drivers <laughs> that, that discovers that they end up with a, a great deal more uh, uh, white matter in, in their brain uh, than the regular population has. And actually, the, uh, a related study followed these cab drivers after retirement and found that uh, you know many years after retirement, uh, the, the retired cab drivers have like more than the general population, but less than the active cab drivers. And so this tells us something about the you know kind of the time dynamics of these things. And there are similar things found for um, for instance, like pianists by number of hours spent in childhood practicing. Uh, there's ones for mathematicians by number of hours spent. Uh, doing math problems when their kids correlate with uh, uh, the, the amount of gray matter in this instance in, in uh, another region. And so we have these very like coarse associations. Um, I think what one wants often 
is something a little bit more like a theory of gravitation, and, and, and we don't really have that. We, we have some like very broad rules of thumb that I can describe, and that you know the, the systems that maybe that we'll talk about take advantage of. Uh, but these feel uh, much higher level than than everything I'm describing so far. If you had the choice between your current memory and having like perfect memory, so every detail that ever occurred to you, you stored in high fidelity and could retrieve it. You know, it was always at your fingertips. Would you choose perfect memory or, or would that just be like an absolute curse? Well, you know, it's so hard to imagine, isn't it? Uh, it's difficult to even get my head around. One thing I feel is a kind of humility. I, I, think, it's, I think I can't imagine what that would be like. Uh, and so it makes me a little scared. You know, there are all, are, there are all of these stories of savants who do have these kinds of characteristics. And it's difficult to find stories of this kind where the savants have a happy, happy life and a happy ending. Uh, so so that's, that's a little discouraging. Just empirically, uh, I, I think we should probably be wary of such a thing. If it's a permanent change and I can't go back, I think I'd probably not take it, actually. <laughs> More just fear of the unknown. Uh, it, it feels a little bit like someone offering some kind of, you know, dose unknown, effects unknown psychedelic and say, Yo, would, you, would, you, would you like to take this? It's like, oh, geez, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, it's kind of like Thomas Nagel's question, you know, like, what is it like to be a bat? Yeah, right. It's almost inconceivable. What, would, would you take it? I, I have a similar, a similar reaction to you. I think probably not. Although I'd be pretty curious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, so one thing that's interesting, we'll probably discuss this more, is that like, I, I've done a bunch of things to make my memory a lot stronger over the last few years. And that has just been, as far as I can tell, an unalloyed good. I had feared, for instance, that like, oh, maybe this will like make my memory for other things worse, or I will regret remembering all this stuff in great detail. And like, nope, <laughs> as far as I can tell, there's no downside. <laughs> so, so clearly, like, you can, you can crank up memory uh, a great deal and probably like way, way more than, than I've done before reaching some of these negative effects. How much better do you think your life is now as a result of having cranked up your memory? Is it like 3x better, 10x better, less than 1x better? <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's so subtle. Uh, it's, so, it's so hard to talk about. I, I mean, there, there, are these, there are these things that you, you could do quantitatively. You, you could, you know, have me read a book and, and give me a, test on the contents of the book and like compare that to someone else. And it wouldn't be a 10x higher score. Uh, I, I would know the stuff like more reliably. Like that's true. What is the impact on my life? I tend to think it has the most impact uh, at these interesting um, threshold moments where, where actually like a few percentage points better performance leads to a really nonlinear difference. You know, when one is already kind of at the top of some some field, some competition bracket or something, you know, maybe you're already in the 99% of like weird designers working in this particular domain, like I am. Uh, small amounts of additional benefit can lead to like really enormous consequences. Uh, and so like one interesting application is, is just creativity like, and the role of memory and creativity. In order to notice a connection or notice a coincidence, notice a contradiction, is another common kind of creative recipe. Notice something uh, that you observe that doesn't add up with 
something that you'd previously learned. In order to notice all of these things, you can't have to go and look the thing up. To some degree, like you, you have to have the thing in mind already. And um, so expanding the repertoire of, of things that I can make creative connections to has been really helpful for me. And at least relative to my previous life, it, it's, it's done a lot of good. I think that's a really profound point because I'm conscious that, that some people may have like a visceral reaction to this notion of improving memory. They might also think that it's just like not desirable for them because why does that matter? I can just go and Google stuff. Like surely deeply understanding something, having it sink into your bones. Right. Being creative, being able to find unique connections between things is more important. But the the point you just made is that actually having all of these disparate facts and ideas at your fingertips enables you to make those unique connections. Yeah, that's right. I, I think, uh, I mean, I, believe me, I, I don't want to argue that memory is a panacea here, but, but I think it is really important to interrogate. Like when we talk about knowing something or understanding something or creating something, um, what actually do we think is happening mechanically? Like to some extent, I mean, if, if you like learn a very complex piano piece or something, like what, what's happening physiologically is, is a change in memory. Uh, and it, it may not be a change that you can, uh, that you can just you know, snap your fingers and cause to happen. To some extent, if you learn some complex like math idea, like that, that is a kind of change in memory. And so, you know, maybe, maybe this is just a pathological use of the word, but I find it helpful to, to interrogate what's happening creatively. What, what do my creative insights actually depend on? And one of the things I notice is that it, it usually kind of does depend on uh, my, my working set, so to speak. Now, there's a related, uh, really important phenomenon here uh, that, that's often called chunking. Uh, it's kind of an unpleasant sounding name, but the, the observation is, uh, uh, is, is applied in a number of domains. One really classic example is chess. Uh, and so there's this wonderful classic experiment where uh, chess grandmasters and uh, novices are given a chessboard that's all set up, and they're given uh, another blank chessboard and a set of pieces, and they're asked to make a copy of the, the set-up chessboard on the blank chessboard. And the really interesting thing is that the grandmasters are able to just do it in a glance. They look at the fully set-up chessboard, and they don't have to look again. And so, like, it, it, it's set up so that um, glancing is kind of expensive. You have to, like, look back and forth across this partition. So they look once, and then they can just go and set up the chessboard on the other side, whereas the novices, they, they have to go back and forth several times. Their, their working memory can't hold, you know, there's a lot of different pieces on a chessboard, 32 pieces, maximally. So um, what the grandmasters are doing, they figured out through a whole lot of careful experimentation, is they're not storing, ah, this pawn is here and that rook is there. They're storing these higher order phenomena. Like this part of the board looks like this very famous game in a way that I remember. And there's this line of force over here and the king is threatened in this way by this structure. And so they're remembering, in some sense, the same number of details as the novice is remembering in their working memory. But those details uh, are kind of pointing to these much richer uh, representations. And, and like, well, those representations exist in memory. So uh, building memory is, is, is also about building this, these kinds of rich abstractions. Is there anything else you'd say about how you think about the relationship between memory and creativity? Yeah. 
uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I could talk about this for two hours, but I'll, I'll just share one other thing that's in, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> the, the specific mechanism that that I mostly use to reinforce my memory is called retrieval practice, and uh, this involves basically uh, challenging myself to to remember something uh, on on some kind of a regular basis, um, and this impacts my memory. But it, it also does something else, which is that it allows me to maintain my attention on a particular topic in some kind of consistent way over time. So uh, previously, if I, if I read a paper that strikes me as interesting in that moment, uh, then, then I put it down and I go away, like my relationship to that paper is kind of over. Uh, but by doing this, this, this interesting kind of memory practice, there's a non-memory effect, which is that I stay in contact with that paper uh, emotionally, creatively, and it kind of percolates into my life over this longer time frame. It has like a, it has more chances to to connect with stuff, uh, and it changes my relationship to it. Right. So this is like, um, I think Brad DeLong called this secular catechism, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which is a really neat description. But basically, it like, so so to to make this more concrete through an example, say you're studying. A topic that is slightly outside your field of expertise. Maybe you're learning about like quantum mechanics or economics or something. By by continually sure. having contact with that topic over time through retrieval practice, you start to subtly influence your identity. Like maybe you start to think like yes. I am someone who's interested in economics or quantum mechanics. And then maybe I am you know, an amateur economist yes. or an amateur physicist. Yes, like, exactly. Is that, is that the idea? Yes, with, with some of the some of the research uh, that, that, that I've been doing, actually, uh, um, people have said as much. Uh, these participants uh, have, have said that you know, it's, instead of just feeling that like I read a book about X, uh, it's now feeling like oh, I'm a student of X. Like there's this interesting tra- translation. There's another interesting related effect, which is that uh, there are these kinds of things that you learn that. Um, you want to remember in some sense, but it's it's more like you want to carry them with you, like like a little charm or a jewel. Uh, like uh, uh, somebody tells you something really profound that that changes the way the way you relate to something. Uh, there's 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 a quote from a um, a researcher of addiction that that really struck me. Um, he said, "It's hard to get enough of something that almost works." I was really, really struck by this. Uh, thankfully, I, I don't suffer from any kind of, uh, you know, the, the addictions that he was, he was researching. But I, I was really struck by it in the context of um, kind of needing to achieve or, or perform for others uh, and, and having like a very strong drive to that and feeling bad if I didn't. And it's hard to get enough of that because it only almost works. You know, kind of you, you impress people, get their attention and, you know, kind of it fritters away. It's not the kind of acceptance or belonging one might want. So anyway, that's like a very profound uh, kind of insight and in this kind of catechism style, uh, I, I can um, I, I can tuck that into my pocket and um, bring myself back to that insight, as well as um, allow it to apply to whatever moment I'm, I'm in now, uh, by engaging in something that's kind of like retrieval practice. It's kind of like reinforcing my memory, but here the point isn't really to make sure I remember that phrase. I'm going to remember it. It's more to um, yeah, have repeated exposure and kind of lengthen its its time time exposure. So, how's that for 
first principles. Are there any big things we haven't covered off yet before we move on to, to tools of thought? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many things we, we, we could discuss. You know, it's hard it's hard to say. I, I think um, uh, uh, in order to discuss some of the specific tools for thought I've been developing, like what we'll probably have to talk about, like the, the role of retrieval practice and, and reinforcement or something like that uh, at some point here. But we can also do that like in line, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you like. Let's let's do it in line. Cool. So tools for thought. Mm. This is like a, an an amazing new. I'm not sure. Field of science. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is, it's not even that like new. It's you know, 60, or... 70 years old, or arguably millennia old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, yeah. true. And tools for thought are inventions which can change the thought patterns of an entire civilization, mm. as you and Michael Nielsen define them. And the the definition is is necessarily quite loose, but I thought perhaps we could make it more concrete just by sharing some examples. Sure. So one of the examples that you and Michael discuss in, in an, an absolutely incredible and, and, and thorough essay called How Can We Develop Transformative Tools for Thought, which I think took you guys about six months to write, came out in late 2019. Yeah, that's about right. And one of the main examples you discuss in that essay is, is uh, the Hindu-Arabic numerical system. So why was why were Hindu Arabic numerals a a great leap forward in the history of tools for thought? Oh my gosh! You know, it's 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 really <laughs> the, the the thing you said earlier about changing the thought patterns of the civilization. That's that's a wonderful Alan Kay quote, and I'm always like collecting other ways to think about tools for thought. Another one that I like uh, in this, and then I'll apply in this instance, is the notion of alien minds. There are things that you can learn uh, that make your patterns of thought actually alien to a previous you who didn't know that thing. And that, that can happen in, in subtle or small ways. You know, you, you read David Deutsch, it changes the way that you think about problems. But it can happen in really grandiose ways that makes your thinking really very alien. And I think that's, that's really true with these Hindu-Arabic numerals. Uh, if you were to somehow watch what's happening in the mind of a person who's multiplying two numbers with Hindu-Arabic numerals, and to clarify for, for listeners, that's just like the normal numerals that, that you've learned and that you use. Um, you're multiplying two two-digit numbers. What's happening in that person's mind is just so alien if all you know are Roman numerals. Just think about just trying to multiply two two-digit numbers with Roman numerals. Okay, you have like, uh, you have X, L, <laughs> uh, or uh, uh, is L 500 or is D 50? I don't know. You have XXIII times, uh, you know, XXXIV, and you're going to multiply these yeah. things together. How do you do it? Um, so there are certain operations that were very, very difficult to perform with prior number systems. But Hindu Arabic numerals bringing together the notion of place value, that is, that the, the horizontal position of a number uh, can kind of de determine its, its represented value, as well as the, 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 the concept of zero. Uh, and, and using it both to, to represent literal zero, but also to, to represent uh, kind of shifting the, the place values to the, the tens or the hundreds when necessary, when the ones and tens are empty. Um, that made operations like multiplication uh, uh, possible and, and easy to think about in, in a way that they, they weren't before. Amazing. And compared to the, the, the grandiosity, to borrow your term, of the Hindu-Arabic numerical system, how is something like Adobe's Photoshop 
also an example of a tool for thought. Photoshop is astonishing. There's, there's, there's a wonderful institution that used to exist called Layer Tennis. And in Layer Tennis, uh, there would be two artists who would get together <clears throat> and there would be a referee as if it were a, like a real tennis match. And the artist, uh, one artist would, would, would make some, some little uh, Photoshop illustration and they would volley that to their, their peer. And the peer would have a couple of minutes, I think it's five minutes, uh, to, to do something very interesting um, uh, in response and they volley it back and they had to kind of build on each other and um, say something in each volley. And of course, ideally not say it with words. Um, they're, they're kind of um, uh, like puffing out their, their chest and, and, and kind of circling each other, almost you know, like fighting on, a, on, on the school playground, um, but all just with, with imagery and visuals. And ph- Photoshop is the perfect medium to do this because layers allow you to think in this very different and unusual way. It's kind of an extension of, of previous forms of collage uh, but which are now very fluid and non-destructive. So uh, we're, we're probably all familiar with the idea that you can um, just kind of like layer stuff on top of each other. You can draw on one layer and then draw on another layer and then like move the top layer around without damaging the uh, layer underneath. And that's cool. And that already allows you to, uh, say, do multiples of, of an idea in, in a much easier way than you could on paper. But <clears throat> layers... Uh, are, are actually these, these somewhat more abstract objects. They, they can kind of blend in arbitrary ways. A, a layer can um, distort a layer underneath in, in these interesting procedural and non-destructive ways. And so, like, as a visual artist, the, the way that you think about constructing visual art um, is actually just different and alien uh, to, to someone who doesn't have these, these tools at their disposal. It's not to say that, that the previous person couldn't make those things, uh, but they, it might be the case that they wouldn't. And this is one of the things that, that's so interesting about tools for thought is that often the, the way in which they're, they're most powerful is, is, is not just that it, like, it makes something possible that wasn't possible before, but rather that it changes the set of what's salient or, or what's tractable. Like you can multiply together multi-digit Roman numerals, uh, but maybe it's not something you're going to do on the spot or on the fly, or you're going to need an abacus, and that's a whole other representation. And likewise, like there's kinds of art which you can make without Photoshop, but but maybe you wouldn't. And so you kind of change what art gets made by changing the the fundamental nouns and verbs. One of the key ideas in in the essay by you and Michael I referred to is that like good tools for thought mostly arise as a byproduct of of actually doing original work on some other serious problem. Could you share maybe an example of, of that? Yeah, that does seem to be the case. Uh, so so one, one really classic, lovely example is, is Mathematica by Stephen Wolfram. This is a little nerdy, but uh, uh, it, it's a very important piece of software that, that includes a number of very exciting and original ideas about just manipulating math symbolically. So, so in the same way that you might use a pocket calculator to manipulate digits, uh, Wolfram allows you to manipulate equations and expressions and, and graphs and kind of higher order mathematical things. And, and, and what's so interesting about Mathematica's history is that Wolfram didn't really set out to create this. He was working on a bunch of very difficult original research in, in mathematics and studying these kind of uh, cellular automata and symbolic systems. And 
he needed an environment to, to help him and do this kind of symbol manipulation that he was doing and to run these simulations. And there were people who were already uh, working on, on tools of these, this kind. Um, he, he built on prior work. But I, I think it's telling that this particular instantiation, uh, Mathematica, which was created in, in this very serious context, is, is, is the one that kind of gave, gave rise to the, the, the primitives we use today. Another classic example would be Alan Turing trying to solve a particular mathematical problem, problems, and then eventually that births computers. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? I mean, Turing, uh, <laughs> when, he's, when he's thinking about the, the limits of computability, uh, you know, he, he's, he's really interested in it from a mathematical perspective. It's... Um, Yeah, it's it's a theoretical it's a theoretical problem for him. Uh, it, it's not about physical computers. I'm not, I'm not totally sure how to draw, draw the analog to the to the to the serious context of use. I mean, maybe the main thing is is really just that um, yeah, Turing really really wanted to understand those limits. I think that's the main thing. Like, like a, a, an issue for a lot of a lot of toolmakers, and it's a, a risk that, that that I run into myself. Is that we're we're really just very interested in the tools, uh, like oh what what can we do with this, um, but we we often lose track of the the reason for the tools or some kind of underlying motivation. In the case of Photoshop, the art. In the case of Mathematica, you know, the, the research one is trying to do. So one kind of tool for thought that you and Michael have been advancing is the mnemonic medium. What what is the mnemonic medium and how can it radically change the way we think? Right. So there's this uh, uh, kind of silly problem that, that might be familiar, which is that uh, you, you spend a bunch of time reading a book and then you find a couple of months later that you can remember like two or three sentences from this book. Uh, it seems very frustrating. And, you know, if you were reading the book for entertainment, maybe this is fine. And it's true that the book has probably like subtly influenced your thought patterns in various ways. And that's fine and good also. Um, and yet, like probably, at least for some of the books you read, you would like to be able to remember the details. Um, and this is especially the case if you're trying to learn something fairly difficult, uh, like quantum computation, which is uh, the context in which Michael and I have been researching this. Quantum computation contains all of these new ideas and terms and notations, uh, and they, they come at you as a reader just fast and furious, one after another. And so by the time you're on page 20... You're, you're making use of you know, a dozen different things that are totally original and new and unfamiliar. Uh, and without support for your memory, it, it may be really very difficult for, for, for you to get these ideas into your mind. And so the mnemonic medium is an attempt to solve this problem by, by introducing uh, some of the, the memory support techniques that we alluded to earlier directly into books. And, and so like the, the high-level prompt is, what if you could design a book that like does the job of a normal book, but just has the property that when, when you kind of read it in, in the normal way that it suggests reading it, you end up remembering stuff. Uh, and ideally remembering stuff really quite reliably and ideally for a fairly low additional time cost. So the mnemonic medium is an attempt to, to uh, achieve that using this, this technique called retrieval practice, where, where basically uh, after you finish reading a section, you, you just try to remember uh, some the, the, the key stuff from the section using some supports that the author provides. And, and then you repeatedly do that uh, in, the, in the kind of the weeks and the months that follow. Um, 
for a total time cost of something like uh, 30, 40, 50% extra time uh, over the original reading time. Uh, the, the readers, at least of our kind of prototype book, end up really very reliably internalizing all the key details of this textbook. So there's a sense in which retrieval practice and the mnemonic medium are, are like just flashcards, right? Yeah. Although I have just in, in scare quotes there yeah. because they're actually like incredibly impactful and, and, and useful. Yeah. Yeah, okay, right. So uh, yeah, there's a sense in which they're just flashcards. I mean, like, I think the key insight here, I mean, okay, so like they're just flashcards except they're like integrated directly into the text and there's this kind of adaptive scheduling system that schedules them at the right time. But even that wouldn't be that interesting on, on its own. I think the thing that makes it much more interesting is that almost everybody's exposure to flashcards is of really trivial flashcards, like vocabulary words, places like country, capitals, stuff like this, really trivial uh, data. But um, a really profound idea that, that Michael and I have been exploring and, and that people like Peter Wozniak have explored before us is that it's possible to use something like the structure of a flashcard the, the challenge to recall, the challenge to answer, um, to support not these trivial things like the definition of a term, but rather these, these very like, complex conceptual ideas. It's possible to write flashcards which reinforce deep ideas about quantum mechanics and about quantum computation, uh, and which kind of collectively cover all of those fundamentals so that if you, if you can remember all the answers to these flashcards, um, it's not just that you can like you know, speak in this other language, you know, these vocabulary words, it's that um, you actually understand a whole lot about like what qubits are and, and how they relate to classical computing bits and how to manipulate them. Um, ideally, you, you understand, you don't just know. So just how effective is retrieval practice for halting forgetting? Yeah, um, it, it varies a lot by... Uh, by domain and by uh, uh, by person, but um, it it is it, it is apparently more or less possible to find parameters of retrieval practice which will uh, essentially halt forgetting for pretty much anything you could you could care to learn. Um, it it might take prohibitively long for some things, but I'm probably just hedging too much here. Let, let me say instead uh, that that for uh, on a practical basis for everything I've tried, which includes some just arbitrary sequences of digits, it's possible to use retrieval practice to reliably remember it uh, with relatively low cost. Um, some things do require uh, more practice than other things, and often it's possible to, to kind of refactor the, the cards in order to make it cheaper. It's quite magical. Hmm. So what do you make of the critique that that spaced repetition is often just like narrow pattern matching. So people are kind of like recognizing a question that they've written for themselves as a prompt. Yeah. Maybe it's a bit like long and awkwardly phrased and then remembering that uh, that answer goes with that question, but not really like deeply internalizing the concept embedded in that question and answer. I think it's a risk. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's a fairly common thing that, that happens when, when people write the prompts poorly. Uh, unfortunately, one of the challenges of this space is, is that um, it, it's, it's fairly difficult to write these prompts well. There aren't a lot of good training materials around it, and, and it's difficult to evaluate whether a prompt is good um, kind of as a novice. And so if you, you, you can write prompts that are more susceptible to that problem than others. 
Um, it's also true that even if you do a really good job writing prompts, spaced repetition alone, I, I think, is not sufficient to to deeply internalize some some new subject. Like you have to actually do stuff. Um, but but it can really accelerate your way into the subject because you'll find that as you try to do stuff, that you, you kind of have all your you have all the prerequisites, you have all the tools kind of really ready at hand. Uh, and so I, I think the criticism is is, is legitimate, but but can be uh, can, can be mitigated to a large degree. So so what are some tips for writing good prompts in a in a spaced repetition memory system? Sure. Uh, let, let me let me just begin with like the, the overall principle that for me really helps understand. Um, I think there 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 are, there are two principles that the, the rest more or less follows from. The, the first is that you're basically giving yourself a task in the future. So you're you're trying to write a task that you will do repeatedly in the future. So think about what task you want yourself to do. And the second thing is that. There's a specific thing that you can cause yourself to do called retrieval practice, which will reinforce memory of what you're retrieving. That is that if you cause yourself to need to remember something, you will reinforce that thing that you're remembering. And, and so if you think about this carefully, you'll, you'll realize that you want to write the prompt in a way that um, specifies really pretty precisely what it is that you're supposed to remember. Uh, because otherwise, like maybe you'll kind of remember different things each time, and it'll be indistinct, and then you won't reliably reinforce the thing. Um, sometimes you may write a prompt that's uh, that has you do a task that's really unpleasant or onerous. Basically, you, you, you write a, a flashcard that has you, uh, I don't, you know, like recite uh, five sentences or something. Like often that that's an unpleasant thing, and so this is a task that you don't want to do in the future, uh, and and so that's not a good thing to do. Um, so from these principles, like some, some useful practical things, uh, you, you tend to want to, to break the knowledge up into very fine pieces uh, and to, to write prompts which, which, uh, which support memory of, of each of those very, very fine pieces. Um, it's helpful to approach conceptual knowledge from, from many different angles. So if you want to understand the ways in which a qubit is, is unusual, uh, you want to understand a qubit. You need to understand it in comparison to a classical bit. You need to understand uh, how it differs. You need to understand how practically to manipulate them, um, how they connect to other structures. Like, okay, they connect to complex numbers in this particular way. So there's kind of like a, a, a list of, of ways you can connect things to other things that I often run through. And uh, I guess, like, one other thing I'd say, you know, I could talk about this topic for a long time, uh, but this is another useful meta skill, is um, to reflect and be critical about these prompts. So, like, as you're reviewing them, if you notice, like, oh, this, this one just really isn't working for me, uh, just, just ditch it or rewrite it. Um, you, you should have very little patience uh, for these things. They should, feel, they should feel cheap. You should be happy to accumulate thousands of them. These systems are very efficient, and you can accumulate thousands with very little cost. How important is it that you write your own prompt? We don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very interesting question. There's trade-offs here. Um, so it, it's important in the sense that uh, the more processing that you, that you do on a thing that you're trying to learn, the more you're going to learn it. So if, if we remove cost from the equation, then, yeah, you're, you're almost certainly better off writing your own prompts, unless you're kind of so novice at either the domain 
or at prompt writing that you'll, you'll do a bad job. But I, I find that's relatively unusual. So I think it's more about like finding the right spot on the efficient frontier. Um, one thing that's been interesting about Quantum Country is that this is a, sorry, Quantum Country is the name of the textbook that Michael Nielsen and I wrote. It um, introduces quantum computation using this mnemonic medium thing. Um, quantum Country provides all the prompts for readers. So, so you, you do this retrieval practice thing and you don't have to write the prompts using these tips that I just alluded to. Uh, some experts did it for you. And so you're, you're missing out on, on this, this work, this extra processing that you might do. And um, if you were to have done it, then you would probably understand the material better. And yet, uh, so right now it's the case that about 20% of the people who sign up will answer every question in the first like, chapter of the book. And that's like a maybe a decent conversion rate. It's probably kind of okay. If we were to wonder like what percentage of people who start this thing would actually like write a comprehensive set of spaced repetition prompts for the entire first chapter, I think it's probably two orders of magnitude less. So I feel pretty comfortable about the trade-off given, given what we're seeing from, from interviews and, and, and from people's retrieval. Their knowledge, it's, it's not as flexible as I think it would be if they had written all these prompts on their, on their own. Um, but they, they do seem to understand a bunch of stuff. Uh, and and they, they seem to have an easier time making their way into more difficult material as a consequence. I think we've already discussed implicitly some of the common failure modes in memory systems, but are there any others that people should be wary of? I think the main thing to worry about with memory systems and with, with all kinds of other augmentations for, for one's work is a sense of dutifulness. Memory systems, I think, are particularly... Uh, memory systems are particularly susceptible to this because um, people who find them interesting are often like optimizers of a kind. But it's very easy to find yourself feeling like you should learn X or Y or Z and uh, that you should practice A or B or C now that you, you have this system that, that, can, that can make that happen. But what this will do often is turn this thing into a chore. Uh, when when these systems are at their best, they're 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 a kind of they're a kind of communion with ideas that you find inspiring and exciting. It's a way to to sort of underline and, and practice the kind of the kind of learner you want to be, the kinds of things you want to be thinking about. And so, if you find this this joyful ritual filled with burden and obligation. It's a problem and it should be rooted out. It's very difficult to reconcile that advice with the context in which spaced repetition is most often used, namely that of like, students in, in classrooms. Um, I think that's like a fairly fundamental <laughs> problem that I, I can't solve. But at least for professional knowledge workers, uh, who, are, who are using these systems. I think that's the main thing to look for. Keep it joyful. So you mentioned Quantum Country, the, the online 
quantum computing and, and quantum mechanical textbook that that you and Michael have created, which is an example of the mnemonic medium because it uses these like spaced repetition prompts, which are kind of like interspersed throughout the text. It, it's it's a it's a fascinating project. I, I really encourage people to check it out. But for for people who are, I mean, that's an example of of where experts have have created the prompts for you. But if people are seeking to create their own prompts for for their own particular projects, what are some of the tools they could use? Like Anki, Orbit. Could you talk about some of those? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so the 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 classic that that I got started on and Michael did too is, is Anki. It's it's an open source spaced repetition tool. It's very unopinionated, and so it, it's easy to kind of uh, it's easy to shoot yourself in the foot with this thing because um, it, it's not really going to help you kind of use it well. But um, if yeah, it's it's a good place to start. Um, there are some other uh, new tools that that are kind of interesting too. Uh, um, I, I can I can recommend taking a look at a, a tool called Remnote, um, which is kind of a hybrid writing and spaced repetition tool. If if you want to kind of take notes and also do some spaced repetition at the same time, that's pretty interesting. Um, there's another tool called Mochi that that works similarly. I haven't used either of those seriously, so I can't uh, I can't really speak to them in detail. All of these tools operate under more or less the same principles. If you're a Windows user, the, the the original kind of tool on these lines is called Super Memo, um, and uh, again, I haven't used it seriously, but but it has um, a whole lot of much more complex uh, kind of functionality. I, I tend to be wary of of uh, adding more features. I think really the core thing to master is that there's this kind of virtuosic skill of giving yourself a task to do in the future, um, and that, that's the thing you need to figure out. Um, unfortunately. Um, I, Really, all of these tools I find fairly unpleasant to, to actually use. Uh, um, they're, they're, they, they fall afoul of various design uh, challenges, and so like that, that's a limitation of the space. Um, you alluded to a tool I've been working on called Orbit. It's it's really it's not something I can I can recommend to your listeners yet. It's it's a research environment, and um, it like Quantum Country is really trying to explore this part of the design space that's like what. <clears throat> what if these things are integrated into books that you're reading? Um, eventually, I hope Orbit can be used standalone like these other tools and perhaps it'll solve some of the design issues, but uh, it's, it's not that place yet. Got one more question before moving on to your note-taking system. And that is, can you think of any ways in which a startup in the tools for thought space could strongly leverage the network effect? Like, for example, could a platform that uses the mnemonic medium to help people remember ideas from books create a network effect by enabling its users to see the prompts that, that other users have written about the same book? Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm just trying to think of ways around the public goods problem that, that you and Michael have identified that sort of holds back progress in this space. Right. Oh, yeah. First off, I should, I should unpack that for, for folks listening in. Um, the public goods problem yeah, is, is basically that... Uh, if you invent an unusual novel interface, uh, that is often fairly costly for you, uh, but very cheap for someone else to steal. Uh, and so it's it's difficult to capture the value that you create when doing this. And uh, we theorize that this is part of what keeps there from being more very unusual new interface ideas. So uh, 
to your to your question, that there are some exemplars in this space. So Quizlet is uh, is a successful kind of flashcard uh, tool that that has made good use of network effects in the classroom setting. Um, it is uh, it has like quite different goals from from the systems we've been talking about in some respects, it's not really about like personal edification and growth and like catechism, <laughs> kind of joyful uh, communion uh, with, with things you want to learn, but it's like this very practical tool for, for students and um, uh, they, they've had luck with their network effects. I, I've been currently exploring a system uh, for, for Orbit, which is like this prototype research platform I've been using whereby you know, maybe if there's a book that already exists online, you could go and write a bunch of questions for it, and then I could come along and um, see those questions in line as I'm reading as I'm reading the book. So, so not like kind of a separate thing you add on, as in Quizlet or in Anki, but rather like kind of part of the reading. Excuse me, part of the reading experience, like in Quantum Country. Um, I think something like that could be interesting. Could work. There's another uh, direction here that, that I find kind of exciting, and I did a, a, a little bit of an experiment with. Um, this past year with Pology, um, this is kind of like a, a memory as a social signal, a proof of memory kind of idea. So, so this is this, this, this idea that you know a like, pressing the like button on Facebook or Twitter, these platforms, it doesn't it doesn't actually mean that much. It's um, it's a it's an inflationary currency. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I can like as much as I as I want. There's no skin in the game. Uh, that's just, that's just a, a way to say it. It's a poor signal. Um, so I see that you like something that doesn't mean that much. But but if I see that you read this essay and that you um, have been like diligently reviewing the key ideas from this essay for months, right? That means a lot to me. Like wow, this is an essay that that you really care about and you found meaningful. And I can have a conversation with you about that essay, and I, I'll know that those ideas are fresh in your mind. Um, it might make me more likely to want to read it. Um, if I don't know you personally, but I, I admire you, um, I might want to go look at your reading list of like things that you're practicing in this way, and that that might mean a lot more than you know just something that you've like bookmarked, uh, saved to your pocket or whatever. Uh, and it could also be used as a kind of certification. I, I really hesitate here, but like the, the experiment that Balaji and I did was this idea of proof of memory. Like, what if? Uh, I want to incentivize people to to learn about this particular uh, new technology, uh, and uh, and so I, I'm going to say that you know if, if you read if you read this textbook and you prove that you have like remembered all of the the key details from it, then I have you know a gig for you or I have a bounty for you, uh, or this is a badge that you can use for employment or something like that. We did an experiment along these lines. It's clear that like cheating is uh, just like an enormous problem in this space. It's obvious. There are things one could do to overcome it. Uh, I find that whole uh, that whole space of problems really uh, kind of uh, unpleasant. <laughs> I'm running away from it. <laughs> <laughs> That's super interesting, though. And biology, obviously, being biology, Srinivasan. Oh uh, yes, yes. Sorry, I told you by email um, several weeks ago that that I kind of started thinking about similar problems back about five years mm. ago, although not thinking about them with the same level of, of sort of rigor and thoughtfulness that you have. But a friend and I started working on 
like a, I guess a, we was, I was scratching my own itch, but the, the working name was Kaizen for constant improvement. Yeah. Um, one of the concepts out of the Toyota production system, but, but basically you would input a couple of actionable insights from nonfiction books you'd read mm-hmm. and then it would sort of message them back to you mm-hmm. periodically. Right. But with decreasing frequency, the same as space repetition. Yeah. We were to- total amateurs. We only got around to kind of like creating the, I guess, the front-end design. Mm-hmm. But the the genesis of, of the idea was that 2016, I was trying to read a book a, book uh-huh. a week. Um, I, I didn't, didn't read that many in the end. I think maybe like one a fortnight uh-huh. or something. But I had that same problem that you referenced mm-hmm. earlier where I would just find myself several months later realizing... I actually recall very little about yeah. this book. And is there some way I can like catch and preserve mm. the insights? Um, and and so for, for every, I started a blog around it where for, for every book I read, I would review it and then write down two actionable nice. insights from the book that I could in some way like, like implement or op- operationalize in my mm. life. Well, product aside, did that practice work for you personally? Uh, it did. It did. Like it's amazing how, because um, I, I, I haven't been consistent with the practice over the last sort of five mm. years. Like there, are, I've read many more books now that I, I just haven't like properly sort of like reviewed or distilled like that. And it's it's like scary how well I remember yeah. the older books relative to the more yeah. recent ones because for the older ones I was deliberately trying to write down and distill the, the yeah. core insights. Still a, a wide open problem space, and I I, I think yeah. uh, something that that you're talking about here that I I haven't explored as much as I would like, um, but uh, I, I have one kind of paper about called Timeful Texts that I'd like to take a lot further mm-hmm. is the, the this idea of actionable uh, next things. So you know, there's a tool called Readwise that that some of your your viewers might use or might find interesting that does a piece of what you're saying where it's like, okay, well, I'm reading through this book and I'm like highlighting stuff that I particularly like and then it'll resurface it to me. Um, a lot of people really like that. I, I find it um, not all that helpful just because um, there's nothing kind of to do with the highlights. So I get this email that has the highlights and, and my eyes kind of like bounce, it kind of skid off the surface of the highlights. Um, it's, not, it's not retrieval practice, but it's also not something else practice. So something that you're alluding to that I think could be really powerful is... Um, if the things that are resurfaced are, are actionable, um, then now they can change my behavior in some durable way and we can create this kind of longer relationship with, with the book. And so I've been interested in the possibility of kind of taking some of the ideas I've explored with, with Quantum Country and applying them to you know, books like Atomic Habits, you know, some kind of books about behavior change uh, to, to, to see if, see if um, some of what, what you're talking about could, could, be, could, be, could be solved. You reminded me of something interesting just then when you said your eyes would kind of like bounce off the highlights. When I read books today, I mean, I, I don't, I don't put too much pressure on myself to overanalyze mm. the book as I'm mm-hmm. reading it. I might asterisk beside something important mm-hmm. and then dog ear mm-hmm. the page so I can come back to it, or maybe I'll draw a line beside an important section in the margin. Maybe leave a note to myself yeah. or how, note how it connects to something else, but. 
nothing much crazier yeah. than that. But but in the past, what I used to do was almost like underline or highlight like key sections. Mm. And I don't know why, mm-hmm. maybe this is like totally idiosyncratic, but I found that 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 highlighting of a passage of text somehow interfered with mm. my recall as opposed to leaving like a dot or a oh. note in the margin. Is that, have you heard of mm. anything like that before? Is there anything to that? Hmm. You know, there's a bunch of studies that, that empirically compare uh, things like highlighting versus, you know, writing summary notes versus bookmarking and things like this. Um, I, I'm not aware of like a, a specific empirical <laughs> result uh, regarding the difference that you just described. Uh, uh, underlining is, is certainly like a, a, a much more effortful way to accomplish the, the same thing. And so it's possible... Well, okay. Like so, so one one result that, that has been replicated a couple of times is is this observation that uh, if somebody is taking really really diligent notes in, in a lecture in real time, uh, they will often have poorer recall of the lecture's contents uh, afterwards because they, their attention was only half on the lecture. Like they're not really processing what's being said. Like they're, they're just acting like a like a like a delay tape. Uh, and so uh, it's possible that, uh, you know, if you're underlining this passage, that that's like interfering with your, uh, your comprehension of or processing of the, the actual words. I sometimes find, just thinking about this a little further, that I'll get to a passage in a book that's like, ooh, and th- like this is the juicy conclusion. Like this is where they're going to like draw out the, yeah. the ta-da uh, and I'll realize that. And so I'll start highlighting like before I've even, <laughs> I haven't even finished reading the paragraph and now I'm highlighting. Right. And so I, I like what I'm doing, what I'm highlighting is kind of like searching for the end of the end of the yeah. tada sentence. Uh, and, uh, that is not the same as reading it and reflecting on what is, what is being read. So, so yeah, maybe that's what's yeah. happening. And then, and then maybe a little bit later in the book, you find that like, that ta-da part was actually articulated in a much better way. Like, actually, you'd prefer, yeah, yeah. You'd prefer to take that, <laughs> that passage. Right, right. So I'd love to talk about your note-taking system, Andy. There are some oh, YouTube okay. videos of you where you live-streamed yourself taking notes, and I just find it <laughs> fascinating. Sure. The first question I wanted to ask you about it was, is, like, is notes the right label for the things you're writing and and if not what what's a more apt name for mm. the the units that you're producing right uh sometimes i am writing things that that you might call notes uh i i think um those things probably align most with what other people think of when, when they think of notes. It's more or less like summarizing things that other people said or other people thought or summarize, summarizing a thing that happened it's kind of like a record you know, that's that's what I, I think of as a note and um you know for a lot of people like that's that's what that's what notes are for. Like I read this book and I want to write notes about the book. And what I'm trying to do is like get a record of what was in the book. Um, but but for me that that's actually like a small part of the practice. Um, that that's not really what I care about. D- despite all this stuff about memory systems and trying to remember what's in the book, uh, we can put all that aside for a second and say like when when I'm writing when I'm writing prose, usually what I'm trying to do is develop my own ideas. Um, and sometimes. That, that involves like deepening my understanding of others' ideas. But, but usually to deepen it, I have to, I have to get further away from what that author said, get further away from their terms, their representations. There, there's a great book called mm-hmm. How to Read a Book called, uh, by, by Mortimer Adler and Van Doren. 
And they make this, this distinction that I think is really helpful. They say that, that there's kind of an analytical level of reading where your goal is to come to terms with the author. Like when they use the term synchrony or mimesis, like Gerard means that in a really specific way. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just like meme, like, you know, we, we use it on the internet. Um, it, it's, it's loaded, it's freighted with all of this meaning. So you're trying to come to terms with that phrase and with those words. You understand very deeply what they mean. And that is distinct from this kind of later stage where you try to bring the author to your terms. Like you have a line of inquiry, you have a series of theories that you're developing and you're reading in order to support it. Uh, and then you're, you're kind of trying to like see what gems you can extract and how that informs your, your own writing. So I, I, um, I, I don't think of a lot of what I do as, as kind of note taking. Uh, I think of it as, as kind of like computer-supported thinking or like writing-supported thinking. <laughs> I love that. And I love that book. I, I, I purchased that book because of you, How to Read a Book mm. by Mortimer J. Adler oh, cool. and, and Charles Van Duren. <laughs> there are actually some more things we could talk about in that book around things like inspectional reading and some of the sure. other interesting tips they have. But yeah, But I love what you just said. I think it's such a mature insight and it actually, it took me many years to master this, but but just to as the first step, like actually work out what is the author's nomenclature? Like how are they actually using right. their particular words? Because otherwise you can just run off and start drawing erroneous connections between things. Could you describe your note-taking system for people who are entirely unfamiliar with it? Like f feel free to, to take, I mean, it's... <laughs> sure. It, it, it's no doubt better for people to actually watch it happening in real time, which is why I'll, I'll link to the YouTube videos where you live streamed yourself taking your notes. But but just for now, are you able to uh, just take us through step by step, like what you're actually doing and how it works? Yeah, I'll, I'll try. I'll try. Let me let me let me try. Let me try. Um, I. I uh... Those, those videos are difficult <laughs> to watch. They're very long. You're, you're watching me being confused, so I, I'm not sure I could recommend them exactly. But, but let me let me try. Uh, okay, so I mean, the, the, let me let me try to characterize the differences between what I do and and, and what many people do with note taking systems. The, the, the main thing that I'm interested in is accretion. I've noticed that so many of the day to day activities of knowledge work seem to just kind of um, bubble away, and and there's an amount of that that seems acceptable. You could call it, you know, the angel's share, kind of, you know, getting, getting lost to evaporation. Uh, but when it's like, I spent the entire day answering emails and uh, kind of like writing notes inside of a, like a meeting note that I'm never going to look again, look at again. Uh, at that, at the end of that day, I've written maybe 5,000 words, but they kind of like, they haven't added up to, to anything durable. Uh, hopefully I understand some stuff better. And so as I write Tomorrow is 5,000 words, they'll, they'll be wiser. Uh, but it would be better if I could somehow do some of that writing in, in a way where it would build day to day. Um, and so like one metaphor that's, that's helpful for thinking about this is like a personal wiki. Like you have a Wikipedia for, for, for your own beliefs uh, and your own like crazy ideas that you're developing. You know, Wikipedia doesn't allow original research, but your personal wiki can. Uh, so... You know, very concretely for me, that that's this this big file, big folder of of, of note files, and um, I, I found that a number of practices really help to um, write notes 
uh, and again, I'm using this this word note here in, in kind of a, an unusual personal way, but to, to, to write in a way that accretes day to day. So uh, we've talked about a, a bunch of a bunch of ideas over the course of this podcast about spaced repetition. And uh, one of those ideas, for instance, was that when you repeatedly review ideas from a book, apart from the impact on memory, this has kind of like an identity impact on you. And that insight, that claim, is represented by like a single file in, in, in my system, a single note. Like there's a page that, that its name is basically a short version of what I just said. And uh, it started when uh, I was in a couple of user interviews and I noticed that a couple of readers of Quantum Country had said something along these lines. And so when I noticed that, I uh, kind of you know, summarized that effect as I saw it and I extracted um, the quotes, several quotes to that page. And then when more readers said things along that, those lines, I extracted those there too. And then uh, I, I was kind of thinking very generally about well, what are all of the ways in which spaced repetition affects me in a way that isn't about memory? And actually, there's like a whole bunch of different effects that some of which we've discussed in this conversation. You know, there's kind of this interesting creativity effect and so on. And so now, like that that one thing, that one insight about changing your identity and, and um, giving you this connection over time, that can be related to um, these insights about, you know, creativity um, or about salience uh, through this question of, you know, what, what are the non-memory impacts of the spaced repetition system? So there's this kind of organic growth that's mediated by having a bunch of little uh, notes. You can think of them as index cards or as files or as pages. Uh, and those pages, critically, are, they're concept-oriented. So uh, most people take notes in a way that is event oriented, where an event might be a meeting, like these are my notes on my conversation with Joe, um, or um, it might be an event in the sense that I just read this book. And so like, here are my momentary reflections on this book. These are kind of right once, like, okay, we're at the end of this meeting, I'm going to write my notes on this meeting, and then I'm going to use this as reference in the future. This is a record of the meeting, but it's not something to be expanded over time. Uh, by contrast, concept-oriented notes are structured uh, so that because they're organized around a, a concept which is open rather than, than shut uh, and which doesn't, isn't associated with a, a particular event, um, they can grow over time. So that insight that um, uh, reviewing uh, ideas from a book over time can change your identity, uh, that is a concept rather than um, an event associated with those interviews. And it's something that, that I will add to and, and probably whose, whose shape uh, will, will change over time. There's a lot of other things I, I could say, but um, I'll kind of pause there as a reasonable introduction. That's really useful. Thank you. And the basic unit of production for you is ultimately what you refer to as, as evergreen notes. Right. So what are the properties of a good evergreen note? Right. Um, so, so they're concept-oriented, as, as I described. Um, that allows them to kind of expand over time. Um, it tends to be better if they're kind of small. Um, it, it, I have evergreen notes which are large. Uh, so for instance, like mnemonic medium is an evergreen note that I have, but mostly it's just links to other smaller notes. Um, the smaller notes tend to be where the action is. Uh, and that's because um, when you're when you're linking to things, uh, 
linking to a very vague general concept is, is less useful than linking to something quite precise. Another thing that I find quite useful is trying to uh, be very thoughtful about the, the title of, of each of these evergreen notes. Um, the, the titles are, uh, for programmers listening, they're, they're like an application programming interface. They're a handle. Uh, they're a way to refer to that idea. And so often the hardest part is coming up with this, uh, with the title for that particular insight that I, I can refer to repeatedly as, as it grows. Um, it's also good to make them densely linked. So, so the thing that happens as, as, you, as you develop your, your personal wiki or your Zettelkasten, whatever you want to call it, is that um, you wander and you find yourself surprised. And it's very good to find yourself surprised. Like this, in some sense, the system's only working if it surprises you. So um, uh, one, one of the benefits you get if you make these notes very, very small, very atomic, and also concept-oriented is that you, you, you find they're, they're full of links to each other. And, uh, well, yeah, these are the things I could tell. I'll, I'll pause there. When you say atomic, like, what does that actually mean? Because presumably you could, like, you know, split and divide ideas ad infinitum, right? Yeah, yeah. There, there, there's, there's judgment here. Um, so, uh, uh, it, uh, I'll, I'll try, try to make the following point in a, in a minimally technical way. In programming, there's a constant tension between uh, trying to make a maximally general, like, little tool that can always be used in all these little places, on the one hand, and to make a, like, black box system that is very convenient that you can always deploy uh, in a particular situation, on the other hand. You know, the former is, like, more flexible, but maybe you have to stack a whole bunch of those tools together to solve a problem. And then the latter is less flexible, uh, but it's more convenient. So th there is that tension here also. Like the, the, the more fine-grained you make the notes, uh, you, you lose cohesion. You, you start to have to gesture to a set of three or four notes in order to kind of convey uh, a particular uh, idea space that you want to link to instead of like linking to one thing specifically that kind of connotes the idea space. And sometimes I'll kind of do a little bit of both. Um, I'll factor a note into three or four kind of sub-ideas um, so that I can link to those sub-ideas specifically where it makes sense or develop those sub-ideas separately, give them space, room to breathe. Um, but then I'll kind of make a, a parent uh, uh, that points to all the sub-ideas, and then in places where I want to gesture to that whole space, I'll, I'll kind of refer to the parent. Makes sense. And so what is the process of turning inputs into evergreen notes? Like, what, what does that process look like? Yeah. Um, so I should clarify that, that I, have, I have evergreen notes, which accrete, and then I have other notes which don't accrete. Uh, and, and those mm -hmm. are usually um, either uh, event-oriented notes, like um, uh, about a conversation. It's just a record of what happened. Normal kinds of notes. Uh, this is my journal, like what I'm doing today, what I'm thinking about. Um, or uh, I read this book, like here's roughly what this book says. None of these things are creep. Uh, so often things start that way. Like I'm just writing about what I'm thinking about. And then I notice that something... Uh, something can grow to outlive that context. Like there's an insight from this conversation. There's an insight from this book. There's something I'm developing in my thinking right now that, uh, 
that deserves to, to live beyond this moment. Uh, and so that's when I'll kind of try to extract that. Um, often it's, it's connecting to something else. Like often um, I will write, uh, it'll be the second or third time that I've alluded to something in one of these throwaway contexts that I'll realize like, okay, I've written about this a few times now. Like, let me go pull the times I've, I've written about this and kind of summarize and synthesize that and kind of feed it into everything else I'm thinking about. Before I ask my next question, I'm conscious we're coming up on time. Are you okay if we go slightly over? Yeah, I actually have until um, half oh, an hour past. Amazing. Okay, thank you so much. I feel like it'd be a tragedy to uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> stop early because <laughs> I'm, I'm really enjoying this. So the next question, we've spoken about spaced repetition memory systems and, and we've, we've just been introduced to your evergreen notes and your personal note-taking system. Do you or how do you integrate a spaced repetition memory system with an, an evergreen note system? Yeah, this is, a, this is something I've been experimenting with and which I find really captivating. Uh, a, a problem that you'll notice if, if you, the reader, try to use most spaced repetition systems is that they feel a little bit like a, like a shoebox. Uh, like, like you write on a card and you put it in the shoebox and then the card's kind of gone. Uh, it's like it's somewhere in the shoebox uh, with uh, 10,000 other identical looking cards. And uh, if, if you open the shoebox, like you can find it again, probably. But um, it's like next to all of these other cards that look identical. And it's kind of completely lost its context. Um, and so, so something I found really interesting is, is trying to like make these things really contextual. You know, one way to do that is um, by embedding them in a book. So we've talked about that with Quantum Country. But another way of doing that is by embedding them in my notes. So... If that's for something I'm learning about, then I might write in, I was just learning about how RSA encryption works, like in detail, um, yesterday, the day before yesterday. And, uh, you know, I was writing some notes about that. And uh, alongside the prose notes I was writing, like, like textual paragraphs, I wanted to reinforce 15 or 20 uh, kind of details about that encryption scheme and why it was constructed the way it was. And so I, I wrote a bunch of questions in line in my notes, and I have this kind of way of, of doing that um, in my notes where they get turned into spaced repetition questions. There's some other software that, that you can find that, that's been inspired by this practice. And in the case of RemNote, what was just kind of independently developed um, that, that will let you do this kind of thing too. I think that the norms and practices for this are, are, are yet to be developed. Uh, so there's still some problems that there's overlaps. You know, I'll find that I'm kind of writing the same detail twice sometimes. Like sometimes I write it in prose and then I have to write it again in spaced repetition form. And there's kind of ways to get around this by using this thing called closed deletions. I'm not going to go into that detail. Let me just say like it's, it's a little bit unsolved still. But there's something tantalizing about it. And there's a correspondence where in the same sense that we talked about trying to find like the really precise atomic representation of some insight, uh, writing a good prompt is often kind of the same way. Like you want to find, the, you want to get to the heart of this thing you want to remember so that you can reinforce that. The process feels similar, and, and it's the similarity makes it feel duplicative and like wasted work. Uh, often when I, when I find the really distilled insight, uh, I will notice that, you know, I'll, I'll write the prose representation of the distilled insight, and then I'll kind of like turn that into some questions. And, and note also that like I'm turning it into questions about my own insight. This is a thing that I think is not intuitive to do with spaced repetition questions, but I think it's great. 
uh, I, I just had this idea. I noticed this connection. Great. I, I'm going to reinforce it, even though it's my idea. It's not something you know from a book. It's not something I learned elsewhere. It's it's mine. Um, but uh, but practicing that will kind of give it more chances to connect to things, give it more chances to grow. And um, I will do it in line, in the note. Uh, but there's a sense in which it still does feel kind of um, duplicative, even though now it's, it's contextual. So we, we've solved the problem of the shoebox. Why, why is number of evergreen notes written per day the best metric for a knowledge worker? <laughs> this is sort of a provocative claim. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't quite believe it as stated, uh, but uh, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting heuristic. You know, I, what is an evergreen note? Uh, for me, it represents a durable insight, which is sufficiently distinct from other insights as to have its own identity, which is going to survive the day and possibly accrete over time and connect to other ideas. Uh, and in many cases, it's original, or at least my framing of it is original. And, and so, in some sense, like, if I can extract 15 of those in a given day, and that, that's pretty rare, by the way, uh, then that's like a very, very intellectually productive day. It's like, wow, 15, like, distinct, durable, like, independent <laughs> insights that, that are, like, you know, well-articulated, like, wow, that's great. Often, uh, what a less successful day creatively looks like is a whole lot of typing into those... Um, ephemeral scratch files. And like what is less successful about that is not that I'm typing into the scratch file instead of into evergreen notes. That's, that's a symptom. Uh, what's really happening is that I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm running in circles and I haven't, I, I haven't distilled out any single sentence that I can articulate. It's like, aha, I have figured out this sentence. Like this is a thing that I know now. Instead, I'm just kind of like writing in circles. So, uh, Days in which I, I managed to extract a lot of these insights uh, uh, t tend to have gone pretty well. <laughs> Do you have a sense of the proportion of evergreen notes you've written to date that you've had to like kill or substantially revise because you just like you just got something wrong? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so so much more common than getting something wrong is like changed my opinion yeah. or yeah. <laughs> revised. Uh, 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 a very common thing that happens is I have to weaken something. So uh, the, the titles will often be claims, like X is Y, you know, X causes Y. Um, and a very common change, you know, probably 10 to 20% of such notes end up having to get changed to uh, X sometimes causes Y. X is associated with Y. <laughs> uh, uh, sometimes I, I just completely change my view. And uh, that's, that's a fun one. Uh, I would say probably 5%, maybe no more than that. Uh, and, and when that happens, there's a fun propagation where now I like I walk through all of the notes that cited hmm. that evergreen note that I no longer believe, and I have to go, I have to go rethink them. Uh, and, and often I'll, I'll realize that it has some consequences that, that I hadn't, hadn't right, expected. So that, that node in the network has, has faulted or, or died, and now the, yeah, yeah, it was weight-bearing. <laughs> <laughs> it remains somewhat of a mystery that knowledge workers do appear to be so unserious about deliberate practice and honing fundamental skills. And I, I apply this to myself. Like knowledge workers don't work on their reading ability or their 
their note-taking in the same way that, for example, an athlete would, would be practicing by like shooting hoops or a musician would be practicing scales on yeah. a daily basis. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah. Yeah. There's pretty good reasons yeah. for, for why it is. Uh, and, uh, th- thankfully, uh, 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 so, so, so at least we, we, we can we can take a little bit of solace in, in, a, in our in our failures here as knowledge workers. I, mean, I, I think it's mostly because we, we don't know how. Uh, so, so in d- the deliberate practice kind of um, academic research discipline has has identified a whole bunch of things that must be true uh, in order for deliberate practice to be possible, and they're things like. Um, there's a set of well-understood skills uh, which are necessary to the discipline, and there are known uh, exercises which improve these skills. Uh, there are ways of soliciting uh, feedback reliably uh, regarding these exercises. There are coaching techniques uh, for for communicating these exercises and teaching others. And, and like for many things in, in knowledge work, this is just not true. Like we we might agree that um, rapidly distilling the insights from a text is a core knowledge work skill. We probably don't have a lot of consistent agreement on the exercises, the drills that we could do in order to durably improve this skill. I mean, there's, you know, there's things that people propose, um, but there isn't a lot of consensus. I think it's possible to make some progress here. Like, I, I think it's probably possible to, to formalize uh, some of these practices more than has been done. And I think it's probably also possible to make progress through kind of this, this other route um, of more effectively communicating tacit knowledge um, amongst, amongst ourselves. That's so much of what knowledge work relies on, these very subtle things that, that we do that we, we don't know how to formalize into exercises and practices. So, you know, if if we can figure out how to formalize them, that's great. And if we can't, let's uh, let's figure out how to communicate them anyway. You actually alluded to to one method that I'm I'm pretty excited about uh, uh, earlier, which is that like uh, I did a screencast of me writing some notes about some obscure like academic idea and design, uh, and a bunch of people watched that. It's kind of mystifying to me, but like I, I think some ten thousand people have like watched this this video now. It's like an hour and a half of me being confused. And uh, I think part of the reason for that is that it's a source of tacit knowledge. You're, you're kind of watching someone who has some skills maybe that you don't have, certainly still very confused in a variety of ways, but has some certain skills you don't have. Uh, and by watching them, even if you don't have a, a deliberate practice method to like drill that yourself, you can kind of absorb it. It's like a really weak apprenticeship, but a mass medium compatible apprenticeship. Those videos actually inspired me to change how I onboard new employees into my team at Forage. Um, wow. So we now do what okay. I call observational learning. Probably it's already a term and I'm like taking it and butchering it. I don't know. But in our context, a new employee will basically jump on a Zoom call with like a, a longstanding employee. And then the longstanding employee shares their screen and like just starts working in front of them, narrating their thought Great. process out loud, um, uh-huh. and it's been it's been amazing. Like the feedback we've we've had so far is really really good. Wow, yeah. I mean, I guess it's kind of like just that's wonderful. You know, pulling your chair up to someone's desk and looking over their shoulder while they're while they're working in like a physical office, um, but 
now just in a virtual context. So I'm not going to claim it's like massively original, but it was, um, strangely, we hadn't really done anything like that. Um, a lot of, a lot of like onboarding was reliant on like, here, go and read all of our resources in our notion hub. And like, and we'll describe to you the role and what you need to do and the different checklists and steps involved in, in different, um, work streams, but I think actually contextualizing and visualizing all of those work streams through watching someone in real time just like do things and struggle with things um, is is really powerful. Absolutely, yeah. You'll you'll probably be unsurprised to learn that there are some academic disciplines interested in studying ideas along yeah. these lines, uh, and, and uh, you know, specifically for tacit knowledge communication. Uh, there's there's a few approaches that, that rely on similar techniques. Uh, one story I always love to tell along these lines um, is like so familiar to everybody, and that's the story of like um, being a child in the kitchen with your parents cooking. Yeah. Uh, there's I, I don't know if you had this experience, but but there, there's there's this uh, phenomenon of of what we call legitimate peripheral participation, where uh, you, you're in the kitchen initially, you're just like what's watching as a child. But, you know, maybe if the child calms down and, like, seems to be attentive, you, like, give them something to stir or you ask them to, like, fetch something from the cabinet. And this isn't make work. Like, it's not, it's not an arbitrary exercise. Like, you're legitimately participating, but peripherally. And uh, then, of course, you know, you, you might be asked to crack some eggs, you know, like, step up the responsibility. Uh, this is, like, so natural in the kitchen. Uh, and, and the same kinds of uh, approach can, can apply in, in, in workplace setting. So I'd like to talk about note-taking software as distinct from Mm note-taking systems for a moment. Do you still do your daily notes in Bear? Yeah. Let me me prefix this by by saying that I think many people over-index on the question of software. And I think by far the most important thing to think about is like the way that you're going to think and write. Like the methods are, are really the important thing. But like that... Preamble aside, yes, I use Bear. I, I, I like Bear. It's very polished. Um, it's not as powerful as, as some other systems. I, I tend to find myself not not using uh, more elaborate features quite so much. Um, I know a lot of other people like um, Obsidian and, and Rome. Uh, these are popular. Um, but uh, yeah, Bear is what I use day to day. One thing that I will advocate for, because I think it's pretty important, is that uh, your, your, your notes should be should be yours. Like you should have a folder of text files or something like that that is are not trapped in some system. You really don't want to end up trapped. That that's the opposite of evergreen. If you look at the video of you live streaming yourself taking your notes, you can you can obviously see you working in Bear. But you also like used Bear's backend to create your like note wiki. Whether the yeah oh, yes was was that Bear as well. No, it's not really Bear at that point. I mean, that, that's like I have a folder of text files and I, I made like okay. a web app that renders the text files. Uh, so Bear's yeah, not really involved at that point. Got it. Not sure where I got that idea. But a lot of people have, have now tried to obviously replicate that. Um, I think there's like a, an Obsidian. Yeah, plugin. yeah. So if, if you like that, you can, uh, yeah, Obsidian Publish will make a website like that for you and uh, Rome Garden will do it for Rome and... Uh, craft also knocked off my site. This is great as far as I'm concerned. 
you know, I, I am, I'm like a kind of a weird software researcher person. And my theory of change is, uh, there, there's like a trope that like ideas don't matter. Execution's all that matters in Silicon Valley. And I think that's like approximately true as far as a startup is concerned. Like you don't want to be diving into a startup with like the fundamental theory of what you're doing super unsolved. So my, my goal for my work basically is, is to make the ideas so mundane that like they're just like obvious fodder for startups to to execute, and that way I don't, I don't need to execute them at scale, and I'll, I'll stay stay on the, the the tinkering inventing side. Can you describe your process for reading a nonfiction book and, and like committing its most important ideas to memory? So say like say you're sitting down, it's a Tuesday morning, you're at your desk with a cup of coffee, and you open up a nonfiction book that's going to be like a key source for something you're writing. Um, Sure. Where do you start? Are you doing inspectional reading first? How does it end up in prompts in Evergreen Notes? Like, what is that whole process? If if I have a motivation, uh, like I, I know it's a key source for something I'm writing, then my my experience reading this is is really going to be um, mediated through that motivation. So um, I, I will often start with like a list of questions that I want to answer from this book. Um, often they already have answers from other sources, and I will. Uh, flip through the book's table of contents, its headings, um, its indexes, uh, looking for kind of the, the, the density of like, wh- where am I going to find this answer? And I will then like jump around to those areas and uh, read first and last paragraphs of sections. Uh, first, really just to evaluate, like, is this a book that I want to spend more time on? Like that, that's the key thing for me. As a para-academic, um, I, I run into this issue that... Uh, there is always a literature, like on, on any subject, there is a literature and there are tons of books and the books are long. And like the number of pages published does not necessarily correlate to the amount of insight that the field has about the question. And so like the first thing I'm trying to answer is like, is this going to help me? Do I find myself wanting to read more? Uh, and the, the answer is often no. Uh, and so in that case, you know, I'll kind of scratch a few notes about uh, kind of my impressions of, of the book kind of into a note about the book, uh, and then move on. Um, if, if it does seem helpful, then um, I will usually sit down for, for a longer pass at this point, and I will, um, depending on the length of the book, I, I will actually just read the whole thing kind of on a first pass, moving fairly quickly through sections that are less relevant to my questions and uh, more slowly through questions that are highly relevant, or if the book is quite long, then I, I will read just subsections of it. Um, and usually there's an amount of um, kind of spaced repetition question extraction that's that's going on just as I'm reading. Like anything that seems um, particularly important, not because it's necessarily really big picture, but just because it's kind of table stakes for understanding the author's argument. Like they're depending on like this fact, this theorem, uh, this research result, you know, whatever. Um, I'll extract that stuff and it'll start in um, a note about the book as opposed to an evergreen note. And uh, the other thing that I'm doing as I'm kind of making my first pass is I am um, very grossly marking up the book. And like you, that mostly just means like lines in the margin. Um, <clears throat> occasionally I'll write a word or two that's really just to jog my memory about um, like what I plan to do with that. Um, but I'm not really like doing the full reaction, the full synthesis at that point. I find that I have to kind of like load the book into my head before I can kind of digest it. 
Um, so I try not to do too much in real time other than just the memory support stuff. Um, and once, once I've made a first pass, I'll, I'll kind of try to summarize my understanding of the book in, in the book's terms um, in a note about the book. And uh, then I'll, I'll kind of work fairly methodically through the, the parts that I marked up and um, ask for each part, like, uh, is, is this some important idea that I, I want to keep working with? Um, often they're, they're kind of grouped or clustered, so I'll kind of like, uh, it, it'll depend a little bit on the book, but one common method will be that I, I will actually extract all of those highlights like into a note, and then I'll start kind of mashing them around and grouping them and clustering them. And uh, sometimes I will already see that one cluster relates to some evergreen note I was already developing, and so uh, often it'll just be like supporting evidence for, for some evergreen note I already have. And then it'll just kind of go in a reference section in that note. And so long as it doesn't actually change my view on the topic, like the, the body of the note doesn't change. Um, also very often, it kind of represents a new insight. Like, wow, I learned something and this is like relevant to my work. And so now uh, the task is to summarize that insight uh, in my own terms, uh, supported by what the book has to say, and then connect it to all of the rest of, of my work. So, so the question to ask and answer is like, so what? What are the impacts here? Uh, what will be affected by my understanding this? Um, often this, this work that I'm describing, you know, it'll take, this is like maybe a day of, of work or more um, for, for a book I'm reading fairly seriously. And um, it'll often kind of turn into several more specific and focused rereading passes. One other element that, that I failed to mention, but, but is, is often one of the most important things from, from a book for me is, is the bibliography. Uh, for, for a book in particular, and, and for my work in particular, um, I usually get a lot more signal if I move from the book to the primary source, whatever it is. Um, usually the book is describing studies or papers or whatever. And so like, if, if I found the material interesting, then I, I will usually use the bibliography to lever up on whatever seemed important. Yeah, 100%. And maybe maybe there are like a few different books, and they're all pointing towards the same primary sources. So you can kind of triangulate and and then go straight to the source. Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of like accumulate lists of to read yeah. <laughs> notes. Uh, yeah. Imagine now that you're writing a nonfiction book, and uh -huh. you've got to suspend your your reservations about the effectiveness of of books. <laughs> sure. <laughs> as uh, as examples of, of transmissionism, and, sure. and here you're, you're writing a conventional book. Maybe you've got two to three years to write this book. It's about yeah, a topic yeah. you're interested in, but but you're not you're not quite an expert yet. And assume you're writing the book because, firstly, you want to induce yourself to understand the topic better. You're you're genuinely curious about the topic. But you also think it's an important topic, you know mm -hmm. that much at least, and, and you expect to eventually have things worth saying to the public. Right. So what, what would your system look like if you were writing that nonfiction book, say for a general audience? Um, yeah. Take, it requires a lot of research. You have to read a lot of books and articles, papers, spanning multiple disciplines. Um, right. Would your system basically look the same as the one you've already outlined? Mm. I don't, yeah, I don't know that it would look all that different. So I should, I should qualify that I haven't written a nonfiction book before, but I've written, um, you know, 
multi-deca-thousand word essays. Um, and you, know, you, you stitch half a dozen of those together and you have a nonfiction book. Um, so I, I, maybe it, it seems plausible to me at this point that the same insights could apply. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is I think the book would already be partially written. Um, not, not necessarily in prose form, but, but something that's happened to me again and again with essays I, I've, I've written since I've adopted the system is, is that, um, you know, I'm writing all these little evergreen notes that are kind of distilling insights. And um, I, I kind of uh, speculatively link these things together into outlines. So all of these notes about the mnemonic medium, there'll be these little tiny fine grain notes, but They'll they'll usually be be linked in some like big outline about the mnemonic medium. Where like at some point I'm going to write like a monograph about this thing. It'll probably be like fifty thousand words. And um, when that happens, I will have much of the material at hand. And and the the when this happens part is to some degree dictated by the uh, by the nature of those outlines. Um, my 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 work is such that I, I'm not likely to embark on writing a book on a topic I, I, I haven't already done a ton of thinking and writing about. I, I don't like need to do it for revenue purposes or anything like that. So it, it would really be like, because I think I have something exciting to say. And the way that I would know that I have something exciting to say is that like I are, have already said many thousands of words worth of, of things about the topic. And, yeah. I'd love to finish with some random questions, Andy. Okay. So let's, let's do it. I'll, I'll fire them off rapidly, but obviously feel free to take as long as you like with your answers. So, okay. How do you think about increasing the quality and or frequency of intellectual exchanges in your life? So Mm. if you were, if you were an academic, you could walk down the hallway, sort of pop your head into a, a colleague's office and ask them a question. Yeah. What what's your equivalent, and do you think it's essential for knowledge workers to be part of a scene? I find it totally essential. I find that the old trope is true, and like I really am to some degree the average of the people that I talk to, and so the people I talk to need to be really high quality, and I I'm, I take a lot of care in, in trying to trying to curate them. Um, Twitter is, I think, actually amazing for this, and many many people. Don't uh, love Twitter uh, for various reasons, but I think it is possible to curate Twitter so that you are talking to some of the most brilliant, interesting people on earth. And then uh, the source of some of the, the best things that have happened in my life in the past five years has been to turn those Twitter relationships into real life relationships. Um, some great new friends, colleagues, and opportunities have have come for me that way. Basically, all of the great opportunities over the last five years have come that way. Um, hosting dinner parties is a really important part of my practice as a para-academic um, and uh, kind of kind of attending the local dinner party and salon scene, uh, at least prior to the pandemic, uh, being you know, willing to fly around, spend time in different places and, and um, kind of soak up different scenes uh, has been important too. Uh, I, I wish I had uh, more, more advice here and I'd, I'd be excited for any of your, your listeners' advice. You make a really interesting point because I think... One of the common criticisms of online communities or online connections is like, oh, well, how could they possibly possibly be a substitute for, for real in-life interactions? And my response to that is, well, that's not quite the point. Like they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, the, yeah. The most important online connections lead to real-life interactions. Totally. 
Totally. And I do like collaborations and yeah, endless conversation, trips together. Absolutely. Yeah. Next question. What is, I have no idea whether you have an opinion on this. This is a total Hail Mary, but what is the best font to read (laughs) uh, and, and or to type in and why? Do you have any opinions? I will try to answer this question. Uh, uh, okay, so, so there are some things that are just disqualified because they are poorly made. Um, so, like, you use a high-quality font made by a reputable foundry. Uh, if you were using a Mac, Apple has licensed uh, many good ones. And so, like, most of the stuff installed in your system, like, qualifies. Um, and then in terms of, like, what to use to read and write, like, fonts affect the way that you think and feel. Uh, so uh, I find, for instance, that if I use, like, a really beautiful serif like book font for my work in progress notes that that feels imposing and it kind of makes me self edit more. Um, so using something like more, more casual or even typewriter style, uh, will, will help me, uh, for, for messier work. Whereas like when I'm writing a manuscript, uh, seeing it typeset really beautifully and seriously, like this is like a legitimate, uh, earnest work. Like it actually kind of helps me like rise to the occasion. So just think about it in terms of manipulating your emotion. That's great advice. What is the best a cappella song to perform and why? <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, it's useful to think about uh, what makes the voice uh, so powerful. So um, <clears throat> one of the things that's really great about the voice is that uh, you can tune things perfectly. You may not know this, but pianos, all the pianos are out of tune. Um, and this is because of an issue called temperament where you can't simultaneously tune all of the notes. But voices and unfretted instruments can tune uh, perfectly. And, and, and the consequence of this is that they can make uh, wonderful physiological effects happening where it feels like the air is vibrating and you, know, you make a, a perfect, perfect fifth and so on. So anyway, um, <clears throat> I, I particularly appreciate acapella music that takes advantage of, of those phenomena um, in, in, in like Barbershop is designed to do that. It's, it's not my favorite style, but, but I enjoy the effect. And so a good example of the, the effect in Barbershop is um, uh, there, there's a, a medley of the Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, from a group called the Ringmasters that, that, that is astonishing. At the ending, you'll, you'll hear like a, a fifth voice appear because of the effect that I described, even though there's only four singers. Um, and on a totally other end of the spectrum, uh, Jacob Collier's like Moon River takes advantage of this effect in, in, in really, really interesting ways. Um, I also think the, the voice is very interesting for um, kind of groove and, and, and dance, um, like a phonic dance. Uh, and if you're interested in hearing like voice for groove and dance, um, groups like uh, Naturally Seven uh, are, are, are wonderful to listen to. Awesome. I'll check those out. Last question. You've had several successful collaborations in your career, um, especially I'm thinking with Mei Lee, who was a, an Apple colleague who moved with you to Khan Academy, um, and also obviously with, with Michael Nielsen more recently. Do you have a, a formed theory of, of partnerships, like how they fail or succeed and whether the successful ones are a net benefit? I don't have a unifying theory. I'm not sure there's there's any kind of single advice I can give. Um, the main thing I can observe is that partnerships are amazing and the best work usually happens, at least for me, through them. Uh, that there really is kind of a more than the sum of the parts effect. They're, they're costly, 
Um, and so I've had many unsuccessful partnerships as well. Like you, you need to work with somebody who you just think the world of, the absolute world of. They are, they, they are somebody who's just really going to inspire you every day. And um, I think part of why that's necessary is that good collaborations require just a great deal of trust. Like I, I, um, it's very difficult to let go creatively when collaborating with a lot of people, because if you're a serious creative, you probably have like really strong views on how things should be. But when you're working with someone that you really admire and that you really trust, like you're happy to just take your hands off the wheel and, and know that like, you know, they're going to make great decisions. Um, so bringing that kind of, that kind of trust and expansiveness into those relationships and, and then like flowing with what happens uh, has for me uh, led to, led to some really lovely results. Andy Matushik, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for a lovely conversation. Thanks so much for listening. Two quick things before you go. First, for links, show notes, and the episode transcript, go to my website, thejspod.com. That's thejspod.com. And finally, if you think the conversations I'm having are worth sharing, I'd be deeply grateful if you sent this episode or the show to a friend. Message it to them, email them, drop a link in a WhatsApp group, the primary way these conversations reach more people is through my listeners sharing them. So thanks again. Until next time, ciao.